Howdy, and welcome to your dog's, whoops, see a star without me. Howdy, and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne, and today we are excited to have Maggie on the phone, essentially, on her computer in wherever she lives. And so we're hoping we're going to have a good connection today. So we'll see, because we both live in the boonies, and that's how that works. So howdy, Maggie. Hi, Leanne. So... How's it been going? You have, so we both have high drive puppies right now (laughs) (laughs) and high arousal puppies and puppies that make us want to pull our hair out a little bit. Yours probably much more than mine because mine theoretically will find a home sometime before I die. So I thought today we would talk about what drive is, what we mean when we talk about drive the difference between drive and just kind of being a spaz and the difference between drive and, or the link between drive and arousal, as well as understanding kind of how these drivey dogs differ from just say a high energy dog. Because there are a lot of terms that we use to describe dogs. And I think for the normal person, they don't necessarily know what that, what that means. And so I think it would be good to kind of walk people through that so they understand when somebody says a high drive dog versus a high energy dog, they know what they're getting themselves into. I know this because currently I am trying to, I have a foster puppy here who is extraordinarily high drive. She is also high arousal. So we'll get to talk about that too. And high, you know, high energy. She's a border collie. And a lot of the people who are applying in my description on her the foster page, it it I go into a great deal of detail about her and how she needs a job. And folks are are calling me, they're applying for her, and they're like, Well, I run with my dog. I'm very active, I go hiking. And and I'm having to tell them, look, that that's not actually a job. That would be great for a German short hair pointer or a Vishla or any of these high energy dogs, or a lot of border collies. But this particular border collie would ruin your life in between the runs. (laughs) All the runs would do is make her fitter for her shenanigans later on at at home. And you're kind of living the life right now (laughs) with your first border collie puppy that you may have mistakenly ordered the highest drive and high drive litter. And now you're dealing with the fallout. So tell us a little bit about what the drives are that you're seeing. And let's talk a little bit about defining these words, high drive, high energy, high arousal, you know, and, and how all those connect or don't connect or things along those lines. And, and knowing that all these definitions are very fuzzy. This, this isn't science. This is people looking at dogs and, and making diagnostics is probably the best way to describe it rather than this is a scientific explanation. This is not, this is personality and and a lot of personality is very, very fuzzy. So to you, Maggie, tell us about your puppy. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, I did. I, I reached out to this breeder who does, who does bite work actually with their border collies and they raise German shepherds too, and kind of describe what I wanted. And I, I will say, even as a professional, you, you know, and I've worked with driving dogs and high drive dogs. I work in behavior. I'm, I'm 
I felt like I was comfortable and ready. And I wasn't, I, you know, I feel a little bit like that owner. Well, I run, <laughs> I run, right. I run and we're going to do lots of training and we're going to do dog sports. It's going to be great. Um, but I didn't know what I was asking for. I asked for, oh, what a mistake. I asked for, um, I said, I want a Malinois of a border collie. And he said, well, wonderful, because I'll never repeat this breeding again. And it's the highest drive litter I will ever have. And I will never do it. But you sound like you might be a good fit. So I got this pup. And just to kind of define dry, because we haven't really talked about that. So like energy is just you have a spastic, hyperactive dog, right? They're high energy. They've got high um, physical needs that need to be met. And drive isn't necessarily about the energy level, right? It's about motivation and the thing could be anything right it could be like the rabbit you could have like i've got a a, a high prey drive afghan definitely high prey drive you go out he, he just he's a rug until he sees something that moves and he just explodes so, so that's what drive is i happen to get both though a high energy and and high drive dog and his drives are focused around play and interaction and not food. And going into this, I knew that. So I thought I want to do disc. I want to do freestyle. And I just, I'd had sight hounds for so long. I wanted a dog to play ball with really, you know, I just wanted a dog to, you know, I throw a toy and the, you know, the Afghan looks at it, looks at me <laughs> and goes back and lays it down. Unless it's living and then I'll go after it. But, you know, and I worked and worked to build that drive sort of bring back a toy or was interested. So I was really excited about that and, and going into it, that's what I wanted. So the, the parents were known for having fairly low food drive and very high play drives. So, and I got a replica of the parents. <laughs> <laughs> so I have border collies and, and I have, I have to do a head count. I currently have four border collies at my house. Is that right? One, two, three, four, five. I have five border collies in my house because I have the rental. And and when I describe the the drive of the five border collies that I currently have, Cody's extraordinarily high drive for one thing. So you talk about throwing the ball. If you threw a ball for Cody, my older border collie, she'd look at you and go, I, I, have a, I hope you plan on picking that up because she has zero play drive, none. None whatsoever. She won't play tug. She won't play fetch. She won't do any of those things. She wants one thing and one thing only, and that is her livestock. And if you open the door at my house and you let her out and you're watering plants or whatever, she evaporates because she goes and stares at the livestock. And that is her sole purpose in life. And the nice thing about a drive like this versus a drive that you're dealing with, Maggie, is there are never livestock in my house. <laughs> it's not something where, like right now she's sleeping on the bed right in front of me. If the door is not open, if I'm not heading down to the stock, or if the door is not open and she's not allowed outside, the her off switch is on because she, there are no livestock. There's no way for her to get that drive met inside the house. So inside the house, she's the best dog on earth because there are no drives inside, except for <laughs> her other drive is, and they're related, is murder of anything. And so last week she told me she had to go to the bathroom at like four in the morning. And my other dog was saying the same thing. So I believed her 
And so my, I'm groggy. My eyes are half closed. I there's slits. I'm walking to the backyard. I open the door. I don't pay attention. I wait five, 10 minutes. I'm like, I call the other dogs and they all come. And I'm like, where's Cody? And I'm calling Cody, Cody, Cody. And, and oh, that's weird. Where'd she go? And so I go, maybe she went around the front of the yard. So I come around the front of the yard and she had killed a skunk and smelled really quite impressive. So there, there is that drive too. But other than that, there's there's no play, no prey, uh, no play drive in the house, no ball drive. And the difference with this new puppy is this new puppy is just, she's kind of scattered in her drives. They're all of the things. She gets high aroused. She's puppy with, with dogs, with me, with the environment with the hoses. She's murdered all of my hoses. They've all fallen prey to her with just everything. It's just the world to her. She's just a cyclone interacting with the universe. Oh yeah. I can relate. Oh, good. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so she's just a cyclone and she's a different dog. And so while all you need to do to meet Cody's needs is own livestock, this new puppy, and she is not going to go anywhere near my livestock because I want to keep them alive. She She's going to need, oh my God, she needs like five jobs. Because, so I always tell people, look, my dogs, it's been hot. This has been a ridiculous summer. So my dogs have not gotten the exercise they normally get. And, but that still means, so they're not getting the exercise they normally get, still means that they get anywhere from, four to seven hours a day of just outside free rampage time with each other, the environment. Then I also have a chuck it and I can throw the ball about maybe 250 yards straight down the mountain and then become scent work. And she chases Matilda. Matilda is just chasing ghosts. There's only one dog who's actually, Matilda's looking for the ball, but Ruby is actually doing the scent work. Uh, so Matilda's just hoping to just land on the ball and the puppy is just chasing Matilda. And with all of that energy that you think, oh, she should be, no, not at all. She's not remotely tired. The only thing that fulfills this dog is if you do all of that and do 20 minutes of training so that she has a job. And that's when we talk about high drive and high energy, that's the combination we're talking about is is the dog has needs well beyond taking them for a run you can do a run absolutely and and we're going to talk a little later about how even we can make running a job for these dogs but most of these dogs especially these herding breed dogs are very very job oriented they want that clear picture because the other thing that kind of comes hand in glove with high drive and high energy oftentimes, is the third component, high arousal. And high arousal is the dog who switches from play to aggression, like a switch. You see it in puppies, you see it in kids, right? They're all playing, they're all rampaging. You've got the kid who just starts hitting a little too hard, kicking everybody, maybe he was a biter. And we see it in dogs too. The puppy especially, right? I mean, they, they, you, again, like kids, you learn to handle it as you, ideally, you, you learn to handle it as you get older, but this puppy right now, her arousal gets high. And so if I accidentally allow her to be free, when I open the crate or open the, the kennel for the other dogs, she will attack the other dogs. And, and I'm not talking a casual attack. I made an error one day 
Well, it wasn't even an error. It was just a, I just, I, it wasn't a picture I thought would cause any arousal. So my, she would, my Matilda, my other high arousal, high everything, border collie was upstairs. She was on house arrest because she'd had, she'd injured her eye and she had a couple of staples in her eye. So because she had staples in her head, she was wearing an Elizabethan collar and so she wouldn't scratch or rub it. And she was in a crate. So she was on house arrest and I wasn't letting her out with this puppy because the two of them are, are fire and matches. They are just their fuel and they're explosive together. So I'm like, Ooh, let's not let the dog with the staples in her head play with a maniac puppy. So I had the puppy with me upstairs and she'd follow her, her up. She'd come upstairs. I had food for her and I opened the crate to allow Matilda to come out so that I can put the puppy in the crate. And this puppy jumps on Matilda and grabs her back upper leg. And she's an alligator. She's not letting go. And Matilda can't get her. She can't whip around with her face and bite her. So Matilda starts screaming, which of course immediately triggers all those horrible predatory drives in these dogs. And so Matilda's, and I'm like, what the hell? I'm just minding my own business, trading crates. These dogs get along just fine. But without, without the without Matilda being able to correct this puppy's behavior, this puppy's behavior is just, wow, I had no idea. So I literally had to choke the puppy off Matilda's leg because my she wasn't wearing a collar because it's a safety issue with dogs who play like that. I literally had to put my hands around her neck and choke her off because she would not let go. And Matilda's on her back. She's screaming. She's urinating all over herself. I felt horrible for her. And it's all because this puppy's not mean. This isn't an aggressive puppy. This is just just not knowing how to handle her really big emotions about Matilda coming out of the crate. Because to her, that picture I related belatedly recognized is exactly the same of her coming out of the kennel, which is when she runs and grabs her tail and Matilda turns around and nails her. And I mean, it's just this, just clusterfuck. And I couldn't believe the aggression in this puppy. That's very adversely uh, affected their relationship between Matilda and this puppy. So now Matilda's very frightened of this puppy, which is unfortunate, but the arousal was just so, and it was lightning fast because it, because it wasn't aggression and, and by aggression, I mean, aggression with a purpose. You know, when we talk about aggression, we generally are talking about a dog trying to, to gain control of a, of a, of a resource or trying to back something off of them. They're either fearful or they're trying to can keep a resource. This was just arousal. This was just stupid. This is just the little kid who starts hitting his sister too hard because he's just too excited that they're going to Disneyland and he just doesn't know what to do with his emotions. He's not, he's not a murderer, but you, the, the outcome for the other sibling looks the same. I mean, it's a, it is aggression in that it's, that's what the outlook is, but it's not serving the purpose of aggression. And because of that, there's none of the body signals that come with it. 
There's not a warning. There's not stiffening. There's not none of that. She was just happy trotting up the stairs. Matilda's happy and all their body language is loose. And then wham, just, oh, I couldn't believe how fast it was. So that's, and, and this is not a bad dog. This is a great dog. She's going to make somebody an amazing dog. But the person who gets her is going to absolutely have to know what the hell they're getting into. Just like Maggie said. Yeah. And you know, here's the thing with these dogs. If you've got high drive dog, if you have a high drive dog, you have a high arousal dog. You need arousal for drive. But it's balancing that. And one thing that, you know, working in behavior, you're focusing a lot on controlling arousal levels, keeping them low, keeping dogs below threshold. And when you're dealing like with a dog like this, and when you're competing in sports that require a certain level of arousal, you know, even in, in canine musical freestyle, you know, to, to get that look that you want, you need a dog that can work and think clearly with high levels of arousal. And that's something that's very new to me. You know, I work so hard on controlling those, making dogs that might be very high drive or, um, you know, high energy, because you're going to have arousal with high energy and with high drive, right? Um, you're going to have both. But, um, but uh, you know, I, I spend so much time kind of controlling that level of arousal that something that I haven't really done a lot with is teaching a dog to think in a high level of arousal. And one thing that really impressed me today, Leanne saw the, the photo, we do not have a uh, future, at least a <laughs> a future very soon in, in rally because I tried to get a cone out um, and I was going to do some work around a cone and the puppy just picked it up and ran around um, and was just going absolutely nuts. And I asked him to orbit, which is our word for going around something like a tree. And he was able to focus, even though he's going ballistic with this cone that he'd stolen and run around the yard with and be able to, with the, the cone, to be able to do the orbit, which I was really impressed with. And we do a lot of work where, and it's different. It, working in arousal is different than like impulse control or stimulus control, right? You're doing the thing and you have to be able to continue. I mean, you're dealing with this with Matilda. Oh yeah, I deal with this all the time with Matilda. Yeah. But, but with some of the training that you're doing too, you yeah. need her to be able to function in a very high state of arousal. Yes. And yes. that's, it's tough and it's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is what's fascinating. And I think, I think we've got some breeding changes going on that have led to these dogs. And I'd like to visit that briefly because I think we are seeing more dogs like this. The folks who work bite work dogs, the folks who own Malinois and, and Belgian Tavernes and, and working line German Shepherds and the high drive Dobermans and the high drive Rotties. Those folks are used to this picture. This is a picture that's very, that they have to have that picture. And, but that's, a, those people in, in all the dog sports, for those who aren't super familiar with dog sports, most of them are kind of walled off from one another. And it's not a hard wall. I mean, there are plenty of people who, who bridge those gaps and are doing multiple sports. I do multiple sports. Maggie does multiple sports. But a lot of sports are, if you, I mean, if you commit to a sport, you're usually going to commit to one sport because you can, it's, you know, you're either going to be good at all of them or excellent at one of them. That, I mean, that's kind of how it usually is going to go. And 
bite sports, the sports that I'm talking about, where they're used to these kinds of dogs, are those tend to be very singular people. And that was a sport that for a very long time had a lot of gatekeep, gatekeeping. And I think it still does have a lot of gatekeeping with if you're not former military, if you're not former police, if you don't have a German Shepherd out of working lines or a working Malinois, they're not going to allow you in. And, and I'm not speaking good or bad about that. I don't care. But what I am saying, the sport is becoming more popular and it's becoming more popular who are getting into the sport with the dog they have today. They're not going out and buying a Malinois. Some of them are to start the sport. A lot of them are coming in with their high drive. So I came in with my high drive border collie, Matilda. And, but what I think is happening is we, people in sport are recognizing that, that really flashy heel that you see in those sport dogs that amazing amount of toy drive that you see in those dogs is valuable. And if we are going to win, whether it's the national obedience championships or win in rally or win in freestyle or win in disc, you need that energy and or agility or any of those sports. And so now we're seeing that kind of drive being put into breeds that normally you wouldn't see that kind of drive. So I'll be honest, Matilda, if she backed a hundred years ago, Matilda would have been shot. Uh, this puppy that I have probably also would have been shot because both of them are so high drive that they can't think and they would go after livestock. Matilda's actually killed a lamb. Um, not, she didn't grip it or bite it. She ran it into a fence. But she just she can't herd. She's um, she's very difficult to live with. They would have shot her because you have one job as a herding dog. That's to herd. If you're a danger to the livestock, and granted, border collies were always locked up when they weren't out. But these dogs can't function. These dogs would not do well, and they wouldn't exist today or back then. And and so I think what's happening is I think more. Innocent bystanders are finding themselves owning these kinds of dogs. Matilda's breeding was an oops breeding between two actually pretty nice dogs. And it just ended up with a litter like Matilda. And her brother is totally different. He's a totally laid back, relaxed guy. Matilda's the highest drive in the whole litter. Whereas this puppy, this puppy comes through rescue. It came from some Utah person. I'm thinking just looking at her and her brother when I met them as puppies, it was either an oops litter or a purpose litter. But right now you can't even sell purpose litters, especially if you are just kind of doing a backyard breeding. And so they relinquished the last two to a shelter and Arizona Border Collie Rescue stepped in and rescued them. And the female, the male is just a cool dude. He, I was able to rehome him very quickly and he just hangs out at my neighbor's vineyard and is a vineyard dog. He's a truck dog. He goes and rides the tractor and takes their daughter to the school and hangs out when they're, when they're, you know, doing whatever you do on a vineyard. And he's totally cool with it. And her, their cat has lived this puppy, this little girl puppy. She's a completely different creature. And I just think we're getting these 
these crop outs more. And I know your your puppy was purpose bred, but I think we're also seeing a lot more of this showing up in backyard breeding. And so innocent people, <laughs> innocent people who don't know any better, if these puppies, if these two puppies had just been sold to innocent people, the little boy would have succeeded with most anybody who just wants a border collie. The little girl, that's why I'm being so picky about who takes her, is you have to have experience with this type of dog. You have to have experience with either a very high drive border collie or a Malinois or a working line German Shepherd to take this puppy because she's that dog. And I I think that, like I said, I think that innocent people are seeing themselves more and more with these types of dogs and they don't, they don't want them. (laughs) They do not want them. Well, I'll tell you, like, you know, with, with Dill's breeder, I mean, it was, uh, um, you know, they're, they're both great lines, but he knew what he was doing going into it. He knew these were not going to be suitable pets, flat out, you know, and a couple of the puppies were returned and they went to sport homes. You know, he vetted everybody. It was, a, you know, kind of an extensive interview of what I plan to do and how I plan to manage this. And, you know, he, he was quite particular about making sure that these dogs were going to find the right home. And I, I will be honest, I thought about it too. I wouldn't really take him back to the breeder, but I thought, oh my gosh, what have I gotten into? It's, you know, and, and here's the thing too about these dogs that are high drive, high state of arousal. So let's say you have an event. So we've had this event like with Matilda and the puppy, right? Something like that is going to peak cortisol and adrenaline levels. And those levels don't go down for at minimum. 24 hours. So an example of like a low arousal event that's still going to increase um, stress hormones, right? Could be going for a run with your high arousal dog. Well, now we have this baseline of our cortisol and adrenaline levels of whatever that was laying around the house, chewing on the chew. And now it's gone up 10%, right? And then we have an incident like the Matilda. Well, now it's gone up even more. And so a normal event like the run, they're going to stay elevated for about 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours. For an event like that, you're looking at 72 hours to potentially even a week. And then you've got trigger stacking. So what happens is these stress hormones stay elevated. And then you play a game of disc. And then you play a game of ball. And then they get in a dog fight. And then they go to hurting, you know, and it just builds and builds and builds. And then we have arousal that starts to to escalate into aggressive behavior. You know, the, the best example I like to use for trigger stacking is, you know, maybe I, I spill my coffee. I don't like my coffee. I'm going to be bummed if I spill my coffee, but I'm just going to clean it up. But maybe I have a rough day, I'm late for work, and then my car won't start, and then I get a terrible call from a family member, and then my boss calls me into the office, and then I spill my coffee. And every, you know, we talk about personality, everyone's a little different, you know? Someone might yell and scream, I'd probably cry. I'd just break down and cry. So every person responds to in different ways and behaviorally we respond very similar as you know the physiological response is the same right Um, we're building stress hormones throughout the day they stay elevated and with these dogs that are super high arousal we're looking at dogs that are constantly trigger stacked and i'm sure we'll probably talk about this a little later but where do you balance that you know how do you you want a lower arousal level 
but you want to make sure that you have what you need and you're not, uh, the term you used was drive capping. We were talking about that earlier. I thought that was a really interesting term. Drive capping, you don't want to cap that um, per se, but you do want to balance it. Right. You want to, and that, and, and I was just thinking we need, we should talk about that because so, so both of us work with behavior problems and, and I specialize in these herding dogs. And so the vast majority of my students are, cause people are like, Oh, you should be able to get rid of your, this puppy really easily. And I'm like, no, all of my students are the ones who ended up with this puppy who did, they just wanted to pet. So they they are running for their lives when I talk about this puppy. So the first, I guess the, the most, the bulk of my students are divided between the folks who ended up with this type of a dog and don't want it and the folks who want this kind of dog, but they need to learn how to control it. And I think we can talk about, we use some of the same techniques for both, and then you're going to use different techniques for different for different ones. The big thing I the big thing I harp on with these high drive dogs and these high arousal dogs is with drive I want the needs of the dog met. I I do not believe that it is ethical to dope the drug dog up to the point where it's a zombie because you don't want to do the work or now we all do that <laughs> when they're broken. Matilda was all about her drugs when she had staples in her head because she couldn't be in the house. Your dog is also on house arrest. And so he's, he's riding the tranquilizer train, but generally as a low, as a background, we don't want to just, we don't solve the problem with a kid who wants to run and play football by giving them drugs. You give them, you let them play football, but you make sure that when they're on the field, that they don't get in fights because they're over aroused. So we have to, we have to deal with the owners who don't want to play football and, and find a way for the dog to get the outlets met, the needs met without the person, you know, people aren't going to go out and buy a, a thousand sheep. People aren't going to go out and take up agility. Uh, they're not going to go join joint uh, sport clubs, sport, uh, buy sport clubs. So for those folks, we have all sorts of tools and, and we use those to help make sure the dog's needs are met. But also for those dogs, we need to lower that arousal as much as we can because they don't need it. Those folks don't need arousal. And then there's the other subset of folks, you and me and other people who are performance oriented. I don't want that arousal in the house. I don't want that arousal escalating into fights. Like right now I have four high arousal, high drive dogs living in my property. And that I've, I've always had high drive dogs living in my property, lots of them, but this number of dogs who just flip over into bang into arousal, this is new. Briscoe, who's a year and a half is high arousal. Matilda just turned three. She's high arousal. This puppy is high arousal. And I have a six-year-old Australian shepherd who is completely batshit crazy. And all of those dogs are just, they feed off each other's crazy. And I don't live in a world where my dogs live in kennels all the time. And so I, I have to manage it to some extent. And 
and that that takes work. But I just I think we want to talk about both how we work with dogs for folks who are like listening to this podcast going, oh shit, this is <laughs> this is this is why I'm having all these problems versus the folks who are like, oh yeah, these are my dog. This is my dog. I love this dog, but geez, he's hard to live with sometimes. So what I'd like to do, Maggie, is because like I said, I know we both work behavior cases a lot. And and I I specialize, like I said, I specialize in these high arousal dogs, finding them jobs, things like that. And you you specialize in some, you do a lot more gnarly cases, I think, than I do a lot more difficult cases than I do. So when you're faced with a person, when when Joe walks up to you with fluffy McNuggets and he just adopted fluffy McNuggets like six months ago and fluffy McNuggets is completely insane and stalking the cat all day long and bites the kids. Well, never mind. We're going to get rid of the kids because kids are a pain in the ass and that's too much management. But stalking the cat and eating the shoes and wanting to delivering toys. Every time he sits down, he works from home. Every time he tries to sit down and, and type on his typewriter, the dog typewriter <laughs> computer. Every time he sits on his computer, the dog's delivering toys to him. Um, they're squeaking him on his leg. Every time he stands up, it bites him in the ass. Um, if he stands for too long, the dog demand barks at him. All the pictures that we recognize is, whoa, you have a lot of dog. Where do you, where do you start with these dogs? You know, there's two things. The, one of the first things I do is create an emergency plan. So what happens if, and we're talking about maybe very high arousal dogs, maybe not this, the higher energy dog or dogs with medium drive, but we're talking these super high arousal dogs, right? And they're probably high arousal because they have high drive and it's not being managed, right? Um, and it'll take us a while to get there, right? It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take several weeks or several months to the point where these dogs are really well managed. And in the interim, you might be dealing with some potentially, you know, I don't want to use unsafe or dangerous situations, but certainly situations that will escalate at some point, right? Um, right. They're going after the cat. They're, you know, you're not playing with them and you're sitting at the computer and all of a sudden now they're jumping and pulling at your hair and, you know, biting at your clothing, right? What do you do? And so I like to do a few things. So I like to kind of work best for the owner, but I like to have a few tools in the toolbox of ways that we can de-escalate the dog very rapidly. So one of those that I like that's been pretty effective in my home and it's been very effective in the shelter, because a lot of times when you're dealing with a shelter dog, you, you may not have them for very long. They're already at a very st high state of arousal because they've been kenneled 23 out of 24 hours a day. You know, they're, they're uh, stressed because they're hearing all the noises is we'll teach a conditioned like type of find it, treat scatter. And I'll add a scatter marker, condition it like I would a clicker. Yeah. And so that that can serve as an interrupter. So that's scatter one feet. of the first things that I'll do, a scatter feed. Yeah. Oh, I love scatter feed. It so powerful. Yeah. Okay. 
It's super powerful. And so you've got, and, and I will, and depending on the dog and how overwhelmed the owner is, you know, I might have them do a couple of Tupperwares in strategic places in the yard in the home. And if they get into trouble and the dog just can't stop, you know, they're jumping up, they're biting, you know, because with some of these dogs, you know, you bring home, you know, I hate to analyze a breed or stereotype, but you bring home the, I don't know, golden doodle. Well, not even, the, you know, the whatever the, the Labrador and, and then you, you know, you're not really worried about, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but it's, it's not, um, it's cause you're, you're trying not, not to generalize breeds and we should generalize I, breeds. I know. I, I we can know, totally I generalize well, breeds. Okay. It's not racism. Okay. It's not, genetics. <laughs> you're not going, Oh my God, what am I going to do with this Labrador puppy in an emergency? What if it tries to kill me? That's probably not in the back of your mind. But with some of these really, really high drive dogs, I mean, arousal can very quickly move to aggression, you know? And I probably see a lot more of that than, than most people do. And that's why they might seek my services. Um, but I'll develop some, some, some easy strategies to quickly de-escalate. One of the other ones I like to teach is tut. It's super simple. Now their face is away from you. Now their paws are away from you. You can direct their, their head. You can direct the part with the teeth <laughs> wherever you need to go. So I like to teach touch and I like to teach a scatter feed with a, a specific marker because then the marker serves as the interrupter. So the dog starts jumping and now you add your scatter and then, and okay. then boom, now we're on the floor sniffing before we've even tossed the food. So if it takes you three seconds to get to that Tupperware, they're already conditioned to start sniffing on the floor. And then Ooh, sniffing is, is releasing an endorphins and, you know, they're, you know, they're calm. And a lot of people will be afraid, like, well, I don't want to reward my dog for that type of behavior. No, you're interrupting it. And they're now practicing something else because before, and you have to understand for these high drive dogs, if they're drive, what are they motivated by? Mouthing. Obviously they have want to do that. You know, is it because maybe they're, they're bored? Maybe, maybe it's fun. Maybe they are motivated to jump on you and mouth you because it's, it's great. It's great entertainment. And so you've got to be able, um, if you don't interrupt that, it's not rewarding. It's, it's a hundred times more reinforcing for the dog to jump up and mouth you and shove toys in your lap when you're trying to work than it is, you know, to, uh, to throw food on the floor. Absolutely. Yeah. No, because yeah, so like, right, right. Yeah. This puppy. So this, to come back to this puppy again. She loves to fly at you with teeth and she, she's bit me a couple times now that are incisors. And again, it's not aggression. She's not trying to control it. And it's just thankfully for her, it, but she's excited and she doesn't know what to do with her excitement. And so she's just flinging her mouth around and she's, she's a dog. And so she's going to use her teeth and, and yeah, so, so just doing that. She's doing it because for a purpose. She's doing it because she's she's excited and it, it fulfills her excitement and feeds into her excitement. And so absolutely, if you interrupt that with food, yeah, food has value, but it doesn't have, you're, you don't have nearly as much value as her flying into you and biting. Now, and if you do accidentally create a behavior chain where the dog sees you and comes and charges you and bites you and then looks for food, well, that's easy to interrupt. You just throw the food prior. So, you know, even if I accidentally create behavior change with this, usually you can, A, it's very rare, and B, if you start to see it happening, you can get in front of it pretty, pretty easily in my experience. 
So and, with and, these, you know, the more the dog practices something, you know, the more the dog practices oh, an area where they're sniffing around the, the food, you know, for food while you're at your computer is so much better than practicing shoving the toys in your, your lap. Yes. And escalating. So when I'm faced with these types of dogs, I, I do several things right away. The biggest thing I talk about, and, and I got the terminology from J-Jack, which I love the terminology, is windows of opportunity. Is especially because, again, most of the dogs I'm dealing with are, are herding dogs. And for herding dogs especially, living in a world of not living in a world where they cannot control their outcome is very stressful for these dogs. And what a lot of people do is they get these types of dogs and they think, I'm just going to play with them all the time. And then the dog starts initiating the play too. And sometimes the owner throws the ball when the dog initiates it. And sometimes the owner doesn't. Well, that creates ambiguity and the dogs don't get that. They don't understand why there's ambiguity and the ambiguity leads to stress. And then these types of dogs, when they get stressed, they tend to stress up which means they become more frantic, more upset, more animated. They're not the Labrador that you always see the picture of that you yell at and he's got the whites of his eyes showing and he's all hunched over and looking sad. No, these dogs, you yell at them and they grab your curtains and tear them off the wall and run around the house with them. And so when you have these types of dogs, you don't, you want to work as hard as you can to avoid any sort of frustration And so for me, the biggest thing that I do right away with my owners is I say, you do not ever let your dog initiate play, period. You don't let them initiate training. You don't let them initiate play. You don't let them initiate anything. And people are like, oh my God, that sounds really mean. But it's not mean. What it is, is it's teaching your kids that they're allowed to play all they want on the playground. But they're not allowed to do that in a restaurant. And Clarity really helps these dogs and you don't have to be draconian about it. You simply hide all the toys unless the dog knows how to play with them by themselves and you initiate play. Cause I don't, I, the other thing I do really stress to owners is I take away the ball. We don't do any pl- ball play. I hate, I hate tennis ball play. I hate it. I, I if you're going to do it, it has to be scent work. You need to either live in the deep dark woods or live on a cliff like I do where you throw the chuck it and 20 minutes later the dog shows up with it because they've been using their nose that whole time. Or what I'll do is have people hide it in their, under the flower pot and let the dog find it. And then they'll get one throw and then hide it again. And I said, you know, maximum 10 throws. or I usually use five throws for a day. And that's it because it can become very quickly compulsive, obsessive compulsive with these dogs. The other thing I really like to introduce quickly is some sort of, I want the, a lot of these dogs are in a mental place where they're not thinking. They're like a kid who's all cracked up on sugar and they're at Disneyland and they're screaming and they've lost their little minds and they're overtired and they're just wackadoo. And so the next thing I do after instilling the windows of opportunity and clarity is we will work with either a flirt pole or a Zen bowl or something to teach the dog that he has to wait to get stuff. Now, I never 
do that with dog food at the end of the day. I, for whatever reason, I've decided that's rude. I think food should literally be free. So the, the kibble, I don't usually make dogs wait unless they're spinning. My Aussie jumps up and spins and she can hit, she's hit the bottom of the bowl before and flung dog food everywhere. So for her, she's not allowed to do that. She has to sit because she, she pirouettes and bonks her head and spills the food. But for everybody else, I don't really care. But for, like like I said, I'll, I'll institute a flirt pole game where the dog gets to play with the flirt pole and then I pick the flirt pole up and I teach the dog a sit. It's very simple and you can usually get the picture across to the dog right away is if you start to move and break before I release you, the, the toy comes back up. Well, they don't want that. And it starts putting, it, it feeds their needs for the chase, the fun, the the game, but it teaches them that all important piece of inhibition or bite or, or um, self-control or, or whatever you want to call it, that every predator has inborn in them. They have to have it. A predator who doesn't do that, a predator who sees an antelope on the hillside, like my idiot dogs or your idiot dogs or all the idiot dogs in the world, they see a deer a quarter mile on the way and they're like, I'm going to eat deer and they go taking off. Well, there is zero chance, there, unless that deer jumps off a cliff, they're not having deer tonight. A, a hunting dog understands that just because you see the deer means does not mean you go tearing off of it after it. To eat deer, you have to show restraint. You have to stalk the deer. You have to be aware of where your friends are because you're working in a group. That's how wolves work. It's even how coyotes work. Most canines, except for foxes, do that. Um, most of them work in groups. Our dogs, we know genetically are, are related to wolves. They're going to work in a group. They know that they can't just go flying after the deer. And so it's hardwired in their brain somewhere that I can do this thing. I can wait, gratif- um, you know, wait to, to satisfy my, my goals and they'll be better satisfied if I learn to think. Because my big thing for these types of dogs is I want to insert a nanosecond of thought between trigger and action because that's where they get in trouble is that that instant something just happened bunny and jerk mom off her feet and make her face ski on the pavement for a while while I go chasing a bunny so we want to be able I want to put I want to start putting myself in that moment for that dog right away as I'm building, just like Maggie, as I'm building hobbies and putting that air quote for the dog to be satisfied. Yeah, totally. And I, I, you know, I think that's your next second step. And I would even add on that doing some kind of environmental cue or environmental context, which you touched on too. You know, maybe toy play isn't allowed in the house, but when we're out in the yard, that's something that's allowed. So kind of setting that up so they have a complete picture. So you're not constantly leave it, place, down, that we're in this certain scenario, this is what we do. We're, I'm at the computer, this is what you do. So kind of setting that up. And I think too, you know, uh, so, so I think I started with a really heavy level of impulse control exercises. And, you know, we're working a lot on weights and, you know, a number of different things. And I have found too, and this is something that I would primarily focus on with maybe my clients, right? We're working on things like, you know, leave it's and weights and tug with rules and flirt uh, poles and things like that. Um, But one thing that I found that has been really effective, and I needed to put 
kind of the foundations in place first is the example I like to use that kind of relates to this is like, let's say you're, you're working with a client and they're teaching leave it. And I'm sure you've had these clients. I have these clients all the time and they're trying to set their dog up for success. And so they try to get the dog to sit and stay because they know a sit stay and then they set the food down and then they have them leave it. And then they treat the dog. They put it out. And the dog does a great leave it. But what happens when you throw the treat on the floor and they're already almost there, they're on top of it and you ask them to leave it. Or, you know, if, if uh, you know, say the deer in the yard, right? If you've got your dog under control already, you know, you ask them to sit and wait. Okay. But what happens then when we're in full chase? How do we get our dogs to think then? Um, and so those, you know, I focus on a lot of these really fun games that I would play with with impulse control with toys. And, you know, a lot of it was wait and then get it and then do this. But now I'm starting to really focus on what can you do? And you you have sheep, so you have the advantage because you're already doing this. You know, they're they're already walking up and then you've got to get them to do something else. But, you know, now I'm starting to focus on what, you know, even just simple behaviors, like you're already going after the ball. Can you stop and wait before you get there and then go again? You know, and so those those types of exercises, I think, for these high drive dogs, and they're exercises that I'm not honestly super experienced with, I think are really important too, especially if you don't have something like um, a flock of sheep, where you would learn those skills through the training that you would be doing through herding. Like what we're doing with Matilda and how learning about what we're doing with bite sports helps me understand how to, because you're right. With sheep, I'm always like, well, you, I can call my dogs off sheep. I, I can, if my sheep take off and I want my dog to come back to me, I can call my dog off. It's like, you're, you're going to, the sheep get to leave. They could do whatever. It's hard. It is a very difficult thing. And I do explain that to a lot of people with these types of dogs when they're dealing with bicycles and skateboards and, and runners and cars is the hardest thing to teach a stock dog is to allow the sheep to leave. Because it, it's against every instinct that they have. And they find it both very frustrating and they find it very stressful. And so you have to start with little bitty things. You know, you set up the picture where the sheep are holding still. And, and it's in a round pen and the sheep can't go anywhere. And, and, and you walk to the side so that you can catch the dog when they decide that you're an idiot and you're letting the sheep escape. And you do it on a long line so you can step on the long line before the dog goes and moves the stock again. And, and we do, we do all of that work so that, that by the time they're mature, they're able to have that self-control to see that sheep are leaving and it's none of their business. And uh, we were actually out in the grasslands recently and we were herding and they were antelope watching us and my dogs didn't even see the antelope. And I, and I don't mean they didn't actually physically see us. I'm sure they saw the antelope. They're not blind. Uh, one of the one of the outruns took them fairly close to the antelope. There were three of them standing there staring. And they're like, yep, you're not my problem. You're none of my business. The sheep are my business. And, and that's one of the things that we see with these high drive dogs is this singular obsession with the thing, whether the thing be the toy or the food or interacting with you or whatever. And I think part of what makes some of these dogs appear that they're just more spazzy 
not so much drivey as just maniacal is frustration because they don't have access to the thing or they can't make the thing do what they want it to do. And so I think sometimes we see these types of dogs who we would say, I don't really think that dog's drivey. I just think he's just high arousal and just batshit crazy. But what it really is, is that he never got any of those needs met enough to feel like that was satisfying his need. And so they meant went on to other things. But what I'm working on right now with Matilda is, so we've been working with bite work now for, we've been doing IGP or Shutzend or IPO, whatever you call the, it this week. And we've been doing this for a little over, well, actually coming on two years this winter. And I joke, she's on the 10 year plan because she, it, we have relationship issues because she just does not bond to people. She's the most aloof border collie I've ever met in my entire life. But anyway, we've been working on building to drive because she's not a she's not a Belgian Tavern. She's not a Belgian Malinois. She's not a working line German Shepherd. She's a freaking border collie. And so she has a decent bite. I mean, all two feet of her. But so she loves, loves, loves the decoy, loves him. And there's nothing that can compete with a decoy if she sees him or even hears him in my building. And Recently, we started introducing the idea that she would have to look up at me and then be sent to him. So she'd have to show that she could, that I existed and then we'd send her or that she could leave him and, and come to heal and then be sent to him. And, and I don't use tools. And so, you know, I, I work with people who use tools and so I'm seeing how they're training it. And I'm like, well, I don't want to train that way. And I thought, I was so proud. I thought when they said, okay, can you do this? I'm like, oh, I've been practicing this. I've been doing Zen Bowl with a toy on the back of a chair where her job is to know that that toy is sitting out there advertising its awesomeness. And she had to heal past it and then be sent to it on a cue. So her, her, she's released on a cue directly to the toy. And I'm thinking, I've got this made. So they said, okay, let's try it. Well, A, I wanted to try it at our normal training field, which is a big outdoor field where I figured I could go a quarter of a mile away, get her, look at me, and then send her (laughs) because that'd be far enough away from her. No, we'd try it in my building. There's no distance on earth that will get me far enough away from our decoy. (laughs) None on earth. And so even though I thought I'd been doing all this training, the value of the toy did not come within a mile of the value of the decoy. And, and that was, that was an interesting lesson to learn. And so I had to, what I would do then is I had to solve it. I can't solve it with a prong collar. I'm not going to solve it with an e-collar. So I need to solve, I need to solve it somehow. And so what I did is I'd have my students, we have several drop-in trainings per week where I have my more advanced students come and we practice rally or obedience or whatever. And then we all take turns because it's an hour and or two hour block and you don't want to just keep working your dog. So they'll work their dog. I'll work my dog. So with her, I would have them flick the flirt pole around and I'd have her on a leash because no self-control. And I had to get all the way to the end of the building, get a nanosecond of eyeballs, like, like a flick of eyes <laughs> and be like, get it. So that she knew that was the goal. And that's where we're at. But that tells you how incredibly powerful having a drive 
a drivey dog could be because she will do anything. She will run through glass to get to him. So once she understands that looking at me is the thing, I will own that behavior. But the the freaking uphill climb to get there, oh my God. Oh my God. So, so that brings us to what do we do when we own these types of dogs and we don't want to smash their drive, but instead we want to cap it and utilize it. We want, we want to own the drive as opposed to just letting it be helter skelter crazy, you know, where Matilda, when I first owned her, she couldn't be outside because she'd run down to the livestock, squinkle into the fencing because she was so flipping tiny and chase my stock. That's drive, but that's not useful drive to me. So when we have these kinds of high drive dogs, we have to take the drive and point it in the right direction. It's kind of like a cannon, (laughs) you know, or a gun. You have all this power and now you need to aim it somewhere. So you talked earlier about you, you started off with a lot of impulse control work. So, but how do you, how do you give an outlet for the drive that keeps the arousal from going, from coming, where you light the match and you get a fire, but it doesn't consume the forest. You know what I'm saying? Well, no, I know what you're saying. I mean, it's so interesting because when you're looking at pet dog owners and you use the example of like the skateboarder, right? The impulse control isn't easy on that, but the dog never gets an opportunity to chase the skateboarder, we hope, right? And so eventually you teach enough impulse control that it's, um, you know, it's a manageable behavior. But now let's change the scenario where you want them to go after the skateboarder, but then you also want them to sit after they've got after the skateboarder or recall or, you know, whatever it is, just like you're, you're hurting. And so, and I found that the more impulse control that I did, the easier he was to live with, which was nice. And he's getting much better. He's, he's much more of a pleasurable dog to be around. And I, I spend more time with him because of it. Right. But I also noticed that, we're getting a little flatter in some of our other behaviors. And so some of the things that I've kind of been playing with a little bit and trying to get creative, because I don't have a flock of sheep, is, you know, little things like I might have him, like maybe I have a hold of the toy and I'm going to start drawing him forward like he's going to get it and then ask him to sit and then draw him forward a little bit and, you know, walking with him. So I still have control over the 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 resource i mean i'm saying like the toy is the reinforcer but really the play is the reinforcer so technically i guess if i stopped um you know drop the toy or whatever he wouldn't be interested so that could be another thing i could do too um but kind of starting with a little bit of motion trying to figure out okay what motivates this dog where do our drives lie and how do i get this dog to be able to think and not be a complete idiot um, when presented with these things that are motivators for him, right? And so I've been doing things like that, um, kind of stopping him in mid cue. So like I do like a orbit, I think I was telling you where I send him around something and he's already full blown moving for the toy. I might throw a weight in there or throw a sit in there. And at first that might've started, you know, very simply where I was just kind of, you know, had the toy in my hand and luring him and having him stop and wait or having him do this. I've done 
done a little bit of work with that with food. So like, you know, have, having him, you know, engaging in food and then stopping and sitting and then getting to go back and then stopping and sitting. So that's a very easy exercise for us because he's not very food motivated. So you could do something like that. And so I've been trying to get really creative and you probably have some, some good ideas for exercises for this, which I'd love to know, but just ways that I can get him to a point where he's able to operate in that high drive, but think, which is super, super important for dog sports. Not so much for pet dog owners, honestly. I mean, there is an extent. I mean, obviously, if your dog gets off the leash and they start chasing a car down the road, you need to to also have the the level of training to be able to call them off, which is a similar scenario. But uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what kind of exercises have you done to to kind of work dogs? in high states of arousal. Of arousal. Well, first, you, you know you're a much more systematic trainer than I am. So the first thing is, I'm very careful with a lot of those things for two reasons. The first is I don't want to accidentally lower my drive. And I don't want to create anticipation that, that they're going to be called off. Because A, that can lower drive. The second thing is it can raise frustration. And the last thing I want is more freaking frustration from some of these dogs. So... Because we can use that in that, again, this is a situation where you can use that in bite sports because the frustration comes out in biting. That's a natural release for the frustration. So when I'm holding Matilda far away from, from the decoy and I'm calling her and she gets to do her little bite and bark and hold, it's so cute. She's like, arf, 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 I'm fierce. And she has to come back. She, she, her, what she, the end picture looks like is I call her off from about, I think like six to eight feet behind. And she's supposed to leave the decoy and come to me and heal. Obviously that's not happening right now. So right now I'm guiding her back to me and that that builds frustration. And that's going to build more of the desire that when she is released to bite him. So, so I am, I'm very measured with how I, I do those things and trying to think of what I specifically do that'd be helpful for people who don't own stock because it's not any good to talk about things that involve livestock when 99.9% of people don't own livestock. You know, for tag, tag's frustration is watching sheep leave her. She finds that very upsetting. It drives her frustration through the roof and then she goes in and grips. So for her, we've been using, we've been working a lot with watching stock leave and calling her off mm-hmm. and letting her see that stock mm-hmm. can leave. Uh, and we were even working with other trainer where they were driving, their dog was driving the stock away. Tag would be driving the stock. I'd call her out and she would have to learn that it just cause you got pulled away. doesn't mean the game ends, but it, we know that that's where her frustration lies. And, and she, with her frustration, again, she takes it out with biting awesome for bite sports suboptimal for stock in in obedience everyday life and things like that i think i mostly try i don't do a lot of interruptions of behaviors i do a lot more i think i'm thinking in more along lines of flow that we're in flow Mm -hmm. states so you know for Mm -hmm. me it's a lot more do one thing do the next thing do the next thing do the next thing where I, I kind of keep them on their toes a little bit with speed and, and just, and like I said, my, cause I, I don't think I do that now. I have to for obedience, right? I mean, you have to right. healing, you know, I'm going to need a down on, on, 
on the send out for IGP, but we're nowhere near that. And, and I think in obedience, you screw them down a lot more than probably freestyle and disc. So I'm dealing with a different picture, I think, than you are. Cause in, in, in no, sheep- but I, I like what you're saying. Yeah. You know, one, one event, one behavior serves as a reinforcer for the other. So in that flow state, it's like, okay, well, now you don't get this thing, but you get this thing, but now you get to do this thing, but now you get to do this thing. And so you're offering the reinforcer, like it's, it's not gone. You get it. Right. And I, and I also, all of my dogs have things that they really, really love, really, really, really love. So for tag, it's return to heel from front. In fact, it's so bad mm-hmm. with her that I had to stop doing it because her front would be nanoseconds long before she'd flip to heel. So for her, yeah, we I've had seen to her start. Flip. It's very <laughs> She loves her flip. I love it. She loves her flip. I'm... And Matilda has a kick-ass flip too. That? Yeah, both dogs. Or do they just do that? You did do that. Yeah, well, I just put a lot of energy like... into it. Well, yeah. It's a jump and flip. It's not yes. just a pivot. No, like, both dogs. And Matilda's really is really cool. Matilda's is a hop. Briscoe's is a very specifically, it was a nose touch in the air and I call it pop and it's a flip of a pop and flip. So yes, I do teach it because it's super fun and, and they love it. And it's very reinforcing. So like with Matilda, what I'm doing is so her right now we're working a lot on sits and downs out of movement. So I'm healing mm-hmm. in, in IGP one, mm-hmm. they say you don't need to have the dog, you can pause in the down and the sit on the long when you're walking, but you can't when you move up. So why would I fuck around with it there? So I'm like, no, you, I'm going to start at the end. I've trained it before and it it looks beautiful. I love it. It, To me, it's very, 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 very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, but Matilda struggles with it because she struggles with everything. And so her reward is getting to do an around. Around for her is very rewarding. Mm -hmm. So we'll do hard thing, hard thing, hard thing around, hard thing, hard thing, hard thing around. And mm-hmm. yes, there's reinforcers in there, but not very often. The re- I use the around as a reinforcer for the hard thing, but not mm-hmm. so much. You have to be careful with that because then you'll make, you'll start squashing the freaking hard thing. So you're always balancing. You're always flipping balancing between screwing down too much. And now I've run out of dog or raising too mm-hmm. high and now I have too much dog. And and like with, like with tag, we mistakes were made. And if I hold still for too long without a marker, she starts throwing 40 behaviors at me. And that's my fault. I fucked up. And any nanosecond of lack of clarity from a for tag and she's like oh you don't like to sit you want it down you must want to you must want to spin maybe you sh- I should flip to heel 50 times. Maybe you know maybe I should give you a paw. Cause I did that once and you got right. So for, for her, we're doing a lot of sit one, two, three. Yes. <laughs> sit one, two, three, four. Yes. Things like that where we're, we're slowing. I'm, I'm trying to slow her down without flattening her. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing we've been working on 
with her. But like I said, I don't do a lot of, I, I just can't, I, I'm thinking and thinking and thinking. I don't do a lot of things that interrupt play the, or, or pl- interrupt anything. I'm not, I don't, other than tag with the sheep. And it's only come about because of the problems she has. I don't do that with Cody at all. I never pull Cody off a of sheep who are leaving. Because, do you teach an emergency down? Well, all downs are an emergency down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I say down, you down. Yeah. They're all Well, I guess that makes sense. You do hurting. <laughs> yeah, they're hurting. Yeah. If I say down, you down. It's it's They're all emergency downs. I've always found the emergency this, the emergency this really weird to me because I'm like, if I say it, you should do it. It's do it. Fucking do it. Why aren't you doing it? Um, with Briscoe, it's hard because he's such a big dog that I'm doing sits with him. The problem is in hurting, my brain says down. And so I'm like, lie, d- sit. <laughs> So Briscoe's sit is going to be calling a lie desk <laughs> because I can't change my own brain. But yeah, so I, I, I call my dogs off, my dogs off play. I'll call them off of chasing the chickens. I'll call them off of, I'll call them off things they shouldn't be doing, but I don't generally call them out. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to send Matilda well, A, I couldn't, but I wouldn't send her to the decoy and then and then call. Well, I guess that's what we're doing, only she doesn't, she's not actually on it. So the bite and hold is that you send him to the decoy. It's there's a place board there. You're also on a leash because otherwise she might pop in and make a cheap shot. Um, she has to be far enough into the the blind that she can almost touch the decoy. So she's barking and and Theoretically, you know, ooh, she's so scary. I'm staying in my my blind. I can't leave to this vicious dog. And then you then you are calling her out of that. But mm-hmm. but the, and like I said, and it's but again, it's all about that flow where I send her in, bark, 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 bark. I say heal with her right now. We're I'm guiding her into heal because she just can't right now. Then the then I mark yes. Bam, she's sent. So it's all mm-hmm. one motion. So she sees it. And maybe it's just how I see it. I don't she doesn't see it as an interruption. It's it's a piece of this whole dance that we're doing together. Is mm-hmm. this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Now, part of that is that mm-hmm. in IGP in the bite sports, at least this bite, at least IGP, I can't I I think Mondio and those are like, I don't think PSA is the same, is it's always the same. The order of things is always the same. And so it is a dance, but it's the same dance every time. Whereas what you're working with is you're working with discs and uh, freestyle and things change all the time for, for him, you know, for him. So why are you calling, I guess, so what is the purpose of calling him out? Is it just to, to show him that, he doesn't have to complete things or what, what are you doing there? Oh, I let him go back. So it's, it's to, it's, it's a different form of impulse control. So when okay. you have a dog who's already say in a weight, they're in a stationary position, right? It's much easier to, um, to, to have them respond to a cue because they're not at a heightened state of arousal. I mean, they might be, but probably if they're in a wait or a sit or a down, we're quite calm, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Or if um, you look calm. If you're to, right, right, right. right. Um, <laughs> if you're, say, you're barking and going after the decoy, 
you're not in a stay. It's not like stay and then, okay, yeah, go ahead. You know, you're working in a state of arousal and now you have to do a thing. And so how that kind of applies to disc is you get the disc out or you get the toy out and now we're a lunatic, right? We're in yeah. a state of oh, yeah. arousal. And this is something that I ran into in the very beginning. And I remember complaining to you about this. I'd say, you know, I can, I can work with them with food, but the second I get a toy out, I can't even get a sit. Can't even get a watch me just ballistic. Right. And so I think that's why I focused a lot on that is to be able to be in a high state of arousal and still be able to do the back through and the weave and the, and so I have to simulate that state of arousal with something that they're motivated by. If that makes sense, they still get it. It's not like I'm going to interrupt it and then you don't get it. Like I'll leave it. Um, well, the toy is the decoy. They're else. the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the decoy exactly. and the toy are identical in, yeah. in the arousal that they bring to the picture. And, and so, it, but and for you, it's the same thing where you have to try to choose a, a ladder of value mm-hmm. where, and that's where I struggle with Matilda is Matilda, oh my God, that dog. So there are trainers. There are very skilled trainers. Uh, Shade Witzel. I believe is how you say her name. She is beautiful at this where she can get her Malinois with different, she uses a bunch of different markers to go from decoy to ball to tug to food all in like by cues. I cannot. Mm -hmm. Matilda's brain falls out. And like the other day I was trying to work a tug with her and she kept staring at the wall because she wanted the flirt pole. And if she chooses not to work a tug, I have no recourse. That's one of the weirdest things about this dog is she, we would have her literally, she'll be on a decoy, see a dog playing and she'll leave because she's all about the dog playing. Cause a dog, a dog playing is the highest value thing for Matilda. It's higher value than anything else. And she'll leave, she'll like peace out dude. And then I put her away because I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and beg you to do this job because the other, the other side of the arousal and drive coin is that with all these drive dogs, the reason we have the drive is you can't do it without. I can't do disc with Cody. I can't do dock diving with Cody because there's no play drive. She won't dive off anything for anything. She doesn't give a shit. So without that drive, she can't do it. I'm struggling right now with Briscoe with getting him off the dock. He's not a big fan of water and his toy drive. I really didn't spend a lot of time when he was a puppy building it. I, I built some, but I didn't just go to town on it. Like I did with tag and he's a different dog. And so now I'm struggling where I may not have enough drive from a very drivey dog to do a sport I'd like to do. And so there, that's the problem we run into with these drivey dogs is if the drive isn't in the right direction, that's where we really struggle is with Matilda saying, I won't work with a tug toy. I will only work the flirt pole. Well, it is really hard to (laughs) manipulate a flirt pole to get, to get anything done. And I can use food, but food's value on her on her levels is very low. And 
but she'll always take food. Uh, well, not all. We'll almost always take food. The other thing that we run into with, especially the border collies, is they'll eye up on a toy or whatever. So I was trying to teach her the send out where you run, run, run as hard as you can. And Matilda has this ridiculous bounding jackrabbit run that's not terribly useful, but whatever. I'm going to have to work with what I have. So she's got this jackrabbit bounding run. And you send them out and then the judge tells you to lie the dog down and you lie the dog down. It's supposed to be really beautiful. It won't be with Matilda, but let's just pretend. So I was using a flirt pole. I had a flirt pole strung up at the end of my building. And I, and, and I was like, I was like six feet away or eight feet away. And I'm like, ready, 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 go. And that like all my dog's heads just popped up in the house. They're like, well, what, where, why? That's the cue to just go balls to the wall and get the toy. Because there was no one attached to the flirt pole, Matilda ran, well, bounded two feet, stopped, lied down, and eyed up because border oh. collie. Because border collie. Uh-huh. You know? and yeah, like, that was what we oh, went in the beginning. Yeah. God, mm-hmm. you know. So it, there's always this fight. <clears throat> now, and I know they don't have this, like, like I said, Matilda's a very, I think Matilda stands out as being a case study in whatever genetic cluster occurred in her. But, you know, I don't face these issues with my other, with my normal dogs, only with her. You know, the puppy that I have right now, she, I'm introducing her to tug. I'm introducing her to play. I'm introducing her to the ball. So she's a little hit or miss. The Briscoe is solid on tug, solid on the ball, but I don't really want to get really good. I, the other thing is I'm, I'm kind of, we all have our, our belief systems and, you know, like you never play tug with a bird dog kind of things. I, I don't want to develop a good grip, which is necessary for tug on him until he's been on cattle because I, I, he hasn't, they, all these herding dogs have an instinctive bite and release, or they should come in low, pop and release. And I don't want to accidentally screw that up when he goes on cattle. I need that bite and release. If once we go on bite, then after he's been on cattle, then I will try to develop a tug game with him a little stronger. But I just, again, I don't know if there's any fact behind my belief system but I'm erring on the side of caution of I don't want to create a bite and hold on a dog who's going to work cattle, if that makes sense. No, it does. You know, it does. And if you're working on generalization exercises in addition to that, you know, yeah. it <laughs> it certainly could generalize. But yeah, I, you know, one of the, it's interesting that you bring up the exercise of going from um, like decoy to toy to food bowl, um, because I, I actually love those exercises. So I don't do any kind of, well, you know, I don't do any kind of protection sports or anything like that, but I just love the idea of being able to think and work in front of something that um, you're very motivated by. So we've done a lot of that. So it's where, you know, I set down the ball, the ball, and then the dog has to wait. And then I go, um, and at first I started in front of the ball where I could send them forward, down, send them forward, wait, send them forward, sit. But now I'm trying to get behind the dog. So they're solely focused on the thing. And I'm talking and I'm in the background, but they're still working. And they're in a very high state of of, uh, arousal and, you know, really focused on getting the reinforcer. And I, I just love those. I think that is so much fun. And being able to come back to you and then the toy and then to you and to the toy. And I think, and my theory is, 
that the more you develop that skill, the more it becomes, um, uh, you know, a, um, I want to say a, a coping mechanism, but not even that, but just the strategy for the dog, if they are reacting at the neighbor or chasing the car, because they practice thinking in those states. Yeah. And, well, and then, and, and I kind of call it, because again, I work with border collies and they are, they eye up, they, they get on their eye mm-hmm. and then they fall mm-hmm. into their eye and then they get into a predatory state mm-hmm. and then they run in and grip or bite. Mm-hmm. And in, in Cody's case, she came to me as a shadow chaser. And that's, mm-hmm. I think a lot of that comes from the eye. I mean, I know other breeds that are loose-eyed dogs. I mean, I know you can get shadow chasing and everything, but part of me wonders if there's a link between the, these super eyed up type of dogs and that shadow chasing. And part of it is that I've been working with with her is the idea of letting go. So when we work mm-hmm. stock with these eyed up dogs, like Cody and, and Tag is, is eyed up too, is the idea is they have to let go of the stock. And, and, and it's, it's, it sounds a little arcane. I'm going to walk you guys through it a little bit so you kind of understand. So if I needed to move, if I needed to move a flock of animals from the middle of the field to three o'clock on my left, I have to go around the sheep to do that, right? I have to make an arc. That's called a flank. But that arc can't lean on the sheep. And that I mean, I have to make sure that arc is far enough away from the sheep that I don't disturb them until it's time, till I'm at nine o'clock and I can push them directly at three o'clock. These dogs who are strong-eyed dogs, as we call them, they, they can't let go with their eye and they fall in on the stock. And so the whole time they're trying to get from six o'clock to nine o'clock to move the sheep to three o'clock, they're pressing on the sheep. So the sheep are not going in a straight line. By the time they end up at three o'clock, they've pushed the sheep all the way up to 12 o'clock. And so now getting to three o'clock is really going to be really very hard. So you have to work and work and work these dogs to let go, to physically release their eye from the stock, turn away. Actually, they, they can watch them on the periphery, but you don't want them staring because that stare, they fall in. And that stare is exactly, for those of you going, I don't know the fuck she's talking about. That stare is the exact same stare. It's part of the, the predatory sequence. It's, it's the eye stalk that you see right before your dog chases the bunny. It's the bird dog staring at the, the bird. That's that's I. That's all the same genetics. It's the same piece. And it's the piece when the cat is staring at the bird and their ass is up in the air and it's wiggling. They're falling into their eye. And that is triggering the next piece of the predatory sequence, which is the jump and grab. And that's why so many of these dogs get in caught in their eye and then they fly in and grab. In Cody's case... She, she has no grip. She's a wonderful little dog. She struggles to let go on the stock, but her issue is bigger because she has this obsessive compulsive behavior that came with her of staring and fixating on lights. And so it's been a struggle, but it's been about teaching her how to let go, how to let go of that. And so it is a lot of interruption, a lot of, and she's not allowed to have the light. The light is never going to be a reward for her because it's not rewarding for her because it's, 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 it's a compulsion and it's a very frustrating thing. And it just builds up frustration and stress 
in these dogs to chase shadows and lights. So I don't, she's not allowed to continue to do the behavior. And, and so we've done a lot of switching with her eyes where I would, she'd look at a sheep and I'd look, I'd call her away. And she's so funny because she will aim herself at me, but her eyes, <laughs> she's bent to keep an eye. And I'm like, you don't get to go back to them until you've completely released the eye. And now we're doing shedding, which is when you split the sheep in half. Well, you can't split the sheep in half if you eyed up on them because you can't, you're so mesmerized. And so we've been really, really working on that with her is just let go. But all of these dogs have that, these herding dogs. And, and that's what we're talking about with a lot of these drivey breeds, right? The Malinois, the German Shepherd, the, the Rottweiler. Um, the Doberman's the only one who's not. That's a working line. Most of these dogs we're talking about, when we talk about this, are, are herding dogs. Yes, you can get very drivey terriers. I mean, again, that's exactly what terriers are, is they're high drive, high arousal dogs. And they're not biddable, so good luck with that. But that's what we work on, is that ability to switch. But I love the idea that you can switch your reward systems, because I cannot. I cannot do that with, you know, if Tag sees a tennis ball, her brain falls out. If Matilda sees the higher value thing, she nothing else has ma- matters to her. And so with Briscoe, I've worked more. And again, he doesn't have a big tug game because, see, I haven't developed it because I don't want to. So with all of my dogs, they all have an excuse <laughs> for not being able to swim. And Cody doesn't play at all for not being able to have that, that skill set. So I think it's cool that you're doing. Now you're doing different markers for each one, like get it for the tug and ball for the ball, or are they all the same marker or how are you doing that? Yeah. Well, you know, I love conceptual learning. So everything has a name too. So we have stick and we have holy roller and we have ball and we have disc. And then, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll play around with like a little bit of like switching to this one. Okay. Switching that one and kind of just, just getting him. I mean, they're all reinforcing, you know, it's not like I'm using like this one isn't that reinforcing. They're all almost equally as reinforcing when I'm working on this, but getting him to be able to, to basically listen in the presence of, and in the action of, I guess, more so than anything, I need him to be able to function while he's in the act of seeking the reinforcer. And so, so playing around with that has been super helpful. And then I let him get it at the end, but you know, it's interesting that you talk a little bit about obsessive compulsive disorder which I know we haven't really touched on. And I know we've been going for a while. Maybe you'll edit this out. So it's not hours and hours, but uh, you know, we, we, these dogs, these higher drive dogs do have in higher instances of canine compulsive disorder. And I think that when we talked a little bit, let me just start actually, before I even jump into this, I would love to know your experience with high drive dogs and canine compulsive disorders because you've lived with it and you've dealt with herding breeds and you have border collies. So I'm sure you've experienced this. Yes. And uh, so the first thing is that I think it is a compulsion. It's not a choice. She doesn't chase. She doesn't choose to chase shadows. And, and, and when I first got her, I, I had these kind of naive ideas that I could get her to go from chasing a shadow to chasing a ball. 
you know, oh, this would satisfy that need, right? No, that's not how that worked. The next mm-hmm. thought I had was, okay, let's, when I got her, she was very stressed. She was a very upset little dog. She'd had a, a really tough go for her first 12 months. I think there was a lot of kind of trauma. And then she bit a kid. And I'm sure that that was not a great household after she bit a kid because it was the owner's kid. So I'm sure that was very bad after that. And before she's rehomed to Arizona Border Collie Rescue. And then, and she was my first dog that I ever owned with an obsessive compulsive behavior set. I'd owned horses with it. So I was familiar with the idea, but I, I, and I, in the veterinary field, we'd, we'd encountered quite a few, but in the veterinary field, we don't usually encounter uh, shadow chasers because they don't end up there for that. Most people don't never bring it up. I actually, even though I'd been in the veterinary field for almost that point, almost 20 years, I had never heard of it. I had to call a bunch of people and what we see in the veterinary field are the, the tail chasers because they catch it and they sever their own tail or they destroy their tail to the point where we have to go in and amputate it. So the research that I did when I was much younger and that I then stepped back into when I got Cody really came down. So horses have it. It's called weaving. It's called wind sucking. It, it, it seems to release release in it a morphine type uh, related to the morphine receptors in your brain, and it it the way that you can cure it in horses is with whatever that morphine drug is called the the one that you do away with the one that makes you whatever Narcan I think is what they did they did a study way back in the seventies and if you if you give the dog the horse Narcan it will stop wind sucking. The second though you stop giving Narcan, the horse would go immediately back to wind sucking. And it, it when you see her do it, her body language looks very stressy. It doesn't look right. It's not a, ha- this is not a happy dog. It, it's kind of hard to tell the difference because she also chases bugs and lizards and she loves doing that. But it, it's a, it's a, compul- she's, she's forced to do it. Her it's, so it, in humans, compulsions stem from anxiety. I can't speak to that in dogs, but she was an anxious little mess when I got her. And she was terrible. She was emaciated. She couldn't eat. Uh, she couldn't drink out of a metal bowl because of shininess. She couldn't handle that. I, I defeated her in the dark. Um, there was a lot of things I had to do to change her life. She cannot be outside to this day. She cannot be outside uh, by herself. Because A, she'll go down to the livestock or she'll start shadow chasing the bees that are flying around the trees. She'll sh- she won't chase the bees. She will chase bees, but she will also just chase shadows. And I don't care about her chasing bees, but I don't want her chasing shadows. What I've discovered with her is people are like, oh, just exercise the dog. That might prevent it at the beginning, right? If she'd had the right upgrading at the beginning, if she'd had an outlet when she was a puppy, that might've worked. But after they've developed it, exercise doesn't do anything. She will come out of herding. And if there's a shadow, she will shadow chase. So she'll do it when she's tired. She'll do it when she's stressed. But she'll just also do it if if there's a shadow. Uh, she has to ride in a covered crate in the car because of the shadows from changing direction and all the reflective surfaces in a vehicle. So, I mean, I think we should dedicate probably a whole podcast to that. Uh, but I, I do think, I do know that when we look at it from the veterinary perspective, certain breeds are overrepresented with certain types of what we consider compulsive behaviors. Dobermans suck. They suck their flanks, their flank suckers. 
Um, some cats will do that. I want to say it was Siamese or some of the Oriental cats are are blanket suckers. They'll just suck, suck, suck blankets. Border collies are more likely to do the shadow chasing. So are cattle dogs. So are some spaniels. And the German shepherds, the Malinois, those are more likely to do the 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 tail chasing and the the competitive the repetitive biting of the tail. Um, I don't know if ball chasing is, I don't know where, where really wanting to do something flips over into obsessive behaviors. I don't know if we know scientifically, you know, for humans, it's when it starts destroying your everyday life. Well, you know, <laughs> well, how do you know, how do you know what that looks like in a dog? But I, I think a lot of dogs are probably obsessed with their ball, um, probably to a, probably a quasi pathological extent. The difference is I can put the balls away. I can, I can throw them all away. Um, I have an Aussie who will bring you a shard of her ball. They eat the tennis balls. Uh, Matilda murders them and she'll bring me like an inch square of her tennis ball and want me to throw it. So, so I think, I think there's a, I think there's bleeding between going from what we're referring to as drive and what we're referring to as arousal and all of these things. I think it bleeds into the the brain being willing, pre-programmed to form these obsessive compulsive behaviors. And we know in horses, the breed that's more likely to have it is thoroughbreds. And I believe they did a controlled study where they actually raised them all the same because you could say, well, the way they're fed and the way they're they're handled, but it, it turns out it is genetic and in and that makes sense when you think that certain types of dogs show certain propensities for it. Because like, I don't see it. I don't think you're going to see too many obsessive compulsive behaviors and say like a greyhound um, or low, most pit bulls. Um, certain breeds, you're just not going to see it. And uh, whereas German Shepherds is, all, is almost always tail chasing. So I think that's where you run into those is, is I do think it's a genetic component. And, and I do think it is we put it into the dog. We put it, I think we put it in the thoroughbreds because again, high drive, high arousal, high, all the highs, you know? Um, and, and I think we do it with the, with the, with the border collies too. So our free system that we're using only gives us 20 more minutes. So I do want to focus one last bit oh. for the 20 minutes. Yes. I want to talk about, cause you do conditioned relaxation. I do. Uh, cause we talk about, people talk about, well, this dog comes with an off switch. This dog comes with, and, and my, my belief I'll start is, I don't believe that's true. I don't think that genetics puts off switches into high drive dogs. I think people and management, and I could be wrong, but I think that people and management put off switches into dogs and, and that any dog can have an off switch, but it, you, you just have to manage it differently. So your dog does not have an automatic off switch. Your dog needs to be managed into an off switch behavior. Um, Matilda has to be managed into an off switch behavior. The puppy on the property has to be managed into an off switch behavior. So and I don't do conditioned relaxation. So could you tell me, there are a bunch of different people who do it. I know there's training between the ears does it. I know, I think J-Jack has a, a method that he stole from, he openly admits that he stole from somebody else, maybe Grisha Stewart. I don't know. He, he says who he stole it from. And when we steal things, we all make little changes that make them our own. So where did you get yours? Which of the 50 methods? And could you just briefly... <laughs> walk us through kind of how it, how it works. 
Yeah. Um, okay. So mine is a hodgepodge. Um, it's kind of like a little bit of, I don't know if you're familiar with Karen overall. Um, she has like a, a veterinary behavior guy with a bunch of uh, relaxation protocols. So some of it's Karen overall, you know, I love Emily Larum. She does. It's, it's not really like a click to calm, but it's kind of like a using calm markers and reinforcing offered calm behavior. Um, I have, this is, I'll give you kind of what I do for a standard like client. And then what I had to do with this dog uh, is I had to change it up a little bit. Um, so normally what I would do is I would wait until calm behavior is offered and then I would reinforce that behavior, right? So, and I would use a call marker. I wouldn't mark it with like a yes, or I wouldn't click it, right? I just, with something that is fairly low value, like maybe some kibble and the dog starts to relax or they start to chew on their chew. And then I would walk over and then I would reward. And I've done a little bit of that with this dog, but the issue was that there was never any relaxation to catch. <laughs> like it just, <laughs> he, he never stopped. You know, I mean, he's to this day, he's never slept outside of the crate. Cannot. Right. He will actually, that's how he keeps injuring himself is that he goes and goes till he's overtired and he can't calm himself down. And so we've had to work a lot on that. Um, and so what I did is I basically did, I framed a nice settle and it was like it was a it was almost a working settle you have to be careful with these conditioned oh, relaxation God. exercises yeah. because what you get is this dog who's like off the walls in a down stay on a mat it's just like you know they're like vibrating but they're they're and they're not really relaxed right right they're um, working. And, and that's what right and that's why you want to catch this right and i couldn't and so <laughs> i thought okay well i've got to do that so it started with the vibrating puppy on place um is where it kind of started and then i started to build behaviors that I was hoping would have a conditioned response to being calm. So some examples of behaviors that dogs do when they are relaxed, they shift their weight, right? They shift their weight to prepare when they're in a down for a longer period of being in a down. So they'll sh do that hip shift to get a little bit more comfortable. One thing that they might do is they might bring their head down, right? And they might rest their head on the floor and preparing for sleeping. Maybe they might lay on their side if they like to sleep on their side or they like to relax that way. So they might yawn, they might stretch, they might shake off. So I started to look at some of these behaviors because you want to look at your learner and kind of see, you know, as an individual, what behaviors does my dog offer when they are starting to relax? And I had to kind of observe him while he's sleeping and in the crate because I'm serious, these things just did not occur or with a, a chew. And some of the things that he'll do are kind of normal dogs. If he'll do a hip shift, he'll bring his head down. He might lie on his side. And so I taught these all as individual behaviors. And the cool thing about when you, you teach these things is that these are behaviors that he does naturally. It may not be outside of the crate, but in the crate or in an area where he's very relaxed, like a, you know, a separated air, quiet area. It doesn't have to necessarily be a crate, but in, in these areas, he already has a conditioned response. He does these things and he relaxes. It's like if you need to read to go to bed, right? right. Um, you start to read and you fall asleep. 
and and that's because you have a conditioned response. And so what I did was I trained these as separate behaviors, and then I built them into my settle and relaxation protocol. And little by little, I started to see him relax by and, and head down. So it was not just a in place, but it was a head down and a hip shift. And so it was kind of a combination of both. And then also I built in the most calming activities that I could into it. So it might be you know, 20 seconds of head down and then maybe some, some pattern games. And then it might be 20 minutes with a licky mat. And then I'm reinforcing that in the calming place. And something else that I did, I, you know, I'm really big into environmental cues. And I think I might've talked about this in one of your other podcasts too, but something that was so helpful for me is something that you mentioned, which was uh, teach a lay down every time you sit down. And that was huge. And that started to serve as an environmental cue where I started teaching settle every time I would sit on the floor or sit in a chair. And now I can sit on the floor and then he relaxes and gets a chew. It's incredible, actually. It's really nice. He almost did, almost. I was about to get a video, but he never did fall asleep. But I thought he was going to fall asleep while I was sitting on the floor. So that's how I structured those and added a little bit more time. But I think that the, and I used a calm marker too. So, you know, as he started to relax, I would start to add a, a calm marker like good or quiet or something like that. I, so I usually use good as my kind of like my calm marker. So, so yeah, that's, and I spent a lot of time doing that, but it made such a big difference. Oh, he's so much more livable. And it was a little bit more challenging because I had to teach the slew of individual behaviors first before I could really get it because the, you know, just teaching him to settle on a mat wasn't enough. You know, I needed true relaxation and that was difficult. I had to use behaviors basically that had already been conditioned and add them into my protocol, if that makes sense. No, it does. So, and, and I was wrong. So you're right. J-Jack got his from Karen overall too. So um, that's the one I've, I've heard about. So, because mm. I don't do any of that. <laughs> Part of it is because I'm a lazy trainer. But I do remember the other day we were sitting in the, the living room and it was, Matilda was in the house for some reason, I think probably because she had the e-collar on because uh, of the eye thing. And my husband looked over and he's like, Matilda's laying down. <laughs> She's sleeping. I'm like, yeah, it happens. She, two and a half years, it took her to be able to sleep, lay down and relax if things were happening without being crated. So with her, and that's why I tell a lot of my students, especially if these dogs are overtired, because I see a lot of these dogs who are overtired and I'm like, you need to put them in a crate and you need to teach them to sleep and they need to do it in a quiet room. They can't do it in the living room or with the five cats running by or the screaming kids. They don't have the tool set and then they get crazy. They get out of, out of control. They get tired. They're like an overtired child. They get cranky. They bite. They, they don't know how to handle themselves anyway. And now they're tired and they have even lower ability to handle themselves. And so, yeah, I, I have, I struggle with that too. And, and I have never used a calming protocol. So I was just kind of interested to hear what yours was. I've, I've seen, I, I took a class with the training between the ears protocol. I did not, I was not a big fan of that one. So I just, I knew that Karen Oval had a different one. And I think I've heard about it before where you kind of catch the yawn, you catch the, you catch the, you know, what the pieces of 
of relaxation and you, you capture those. And I'd use good. My uh, good is mine. Good. <laughs> Thank you. It's like I'm whispering. It's like I'm trying to stealth reward them. Like, Shh, yes, take the treat or take the petting. Cause usually for a lot of my dogs, it's petting cause food is too high arousal. So well, we want to thank you. I think this was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think I know I got a lot of it because I mean, that's what's great when we just sit around with another dog trainer and noodle around is, is, you know, I selfishly get stuff out of it. And hopefully our listeners got something out of it too. Even if you don't have this type of dog, A, thank your lucky stars if you don't want this kind of dog. But every dog has points where they're, you know, either puppies or they're zoomies or whatever, where they're just a little too much dog. And it's good to have this tool set and have these kind of, these kind of thoughts in your head. And so I want to thank Maggie for, for quote unquote, showing up all the way from Nevada (laughs) (laughs) and uh, uh, happy trails to you. And I look forward to talking to you again, of course. And for those of you listening, check us out on Facebook. I keep promising to put more shit on there and I will, damn it. Maybe I'll have Maggie send me some videos and like, share, subscribe, review. I did it all. Uh, and happy training. Woo. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>